It was a dark and stormy night, and I was alone in a hut in the woods with a dead body. The monk who had led me to this hut had given me a Thai mantra to recite, Fong no yup no nang no tuck no, which was intended to send my attention floating around various points in my body like a flashlight from the top of my spine down to the compressed knobs of my sit bones and back again. When I had become frightened, he advised I could repeat it faster to sharpen my focus. I noted a rascally gleam in his eye. When you become frightened, he said, not if. I sat with eyes closed and coned in a mosquito net listening to the tiny apocalyptic shrieking of the crickets and frogs. Rain ticked Geiger-like on the thatch roof. Thunder occasionally cracked open in the sky, revealing an embotment of explosions, booms within booms within booms. I soon forgot my mantra, Fong no yuck no, tang no, nup no. Inside the hut, the smell of death was as inescapable and undiminishing as a subquilt garlic fart. At times, the wind would shift, passing through the coffin's wooden slats and pushing more dead air my way. Each time I flinched, my face pruning in that almost disappointed, what the F, man, expression we make around extraordinary ick. I had never smelled a decomposing human body before, but it was similar to dead animals, mice, deer. I had been around, which I realized in the Western world, we push to the margins of our lives just out of sight. At times, the smell was so close that it began to separate into distinct strands. Beneath the acidic, rancid meat notes was the scent of tinfoil, batteries, cheese, feces, and an odd, fermented, almost floral sweetness. I tried to focus on the sensation of breath entering my body rather than on the odor of it. I did not succeed. By now, my mantra had dissolved into pure baby talk. My head was a chatter with snippets of pop songs, sales patter, odd lines of sitcom dialogue, the noetic equivalent of a backseat covered in empty skull tins and Gatorade bottles filled with piss. I chided myself for not being a serious person capable of profound insights. I had to come here to this vacant quadrant of rural Thailand to grapple with my very intense but also very common fear of death and to get good at meditating. So here I was, grapple, I told myself, get good. Then I heard it, the knock-knock knocking of knuckles on a door, except the hut had no door. A few minutes later the uh, came the screechy scrape of fingernails on wood. My neck hairs bristled, my head swam. The sound, I realized, was coming from inside the coffin. I won't keep you in suspense. The dead had not risen. One of the monks later confessed to me that he and the others had been making the knocking and scraping sounds. Their intention was to heighten my fear, which would in turn sharpen my focus and speed up my enlightenment. Fear is one of Buddhism's oldest tools. In the early days, while wandering the wilderness of northern India, monks would often encounter elephants, snakes, and tigers, as well as ghosts and malevolent nature spirits, and then somewhat paradoxically use their fear to find a state of deep calm. This tradition continued through to the mid-20th century when Thai forest monks were still prowling the mountainsides and sleeping under trees. As an old forest monk once told his nephew, when we have mindfulness, the mind is at peace. It's not afraid of danger. Even if we're devoured by a tiger, we will not suffer. The temple of Wat Pai Civil Sai, located outside the town of Bangmun Nak, has carried on these traditions, albeit in a slightly 
altered form. The temple was founded by a charismatic and mysterious monk called Fra Ajahn Jai Saifan. He is a tall man with a slight stoop and softened muscles like an NBA player turned coach. His bright smile is stained black in the gaps. Upon first meeting him, I thought that if he were ever to decide to switch careers, he would make an excellent dictator. He wears yellow-brown robes with a special pocket sewed on the chest to hold a cell phone. When he is outdoors, he wears a conical hat like the ones farmers wear and flip-flops. His feet have the gray, swollen, dusty appearance of unwashed yams. He said that when he was younger, he had lived as a forest monk for seven years. Then he returned to civilization and began studying with various masters of meditation. When he finally opened his own temple, followers flocked to him from all over the country, but he was surprised to learn that his techniques didn't always work on foreigners. Unlike Thai people, most Westerners don't believe in ghosts, nor do we have the good sense to be afraid of many wild animals placed in front of an elephant. A Thai person will virtually faint from fear, he said. An American, meanwhile, is just as likely to try to pet its trunk. I had run up against similar issues of cultural mistranslation before, more than a decade ago when I was briefly ordained as a Theravada monk in Burma. I loved certain things about Buddhism, its rigor, its serenity, its oddly postmodern, cutting-edge neuroscience approach to questions of selfhood. We are all just constructs, just big bundles of flesh and fiction. It's constant reminders that everything, everywhere, is falling apart and that the only way to cure this painful condition is to unsparingly observe it with laser eyes and, in the words of the great Thai monk, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu, finally, let go, let go, let go. What I didn't like about Buddhism was all of the other stuff, what I perceived as the cultural lint that the Buddha's teachings had picked up over time as they rolled from place to place. For example, ghosts in Buddhism, going back to the very beginning, there are six realms of rebirth, one of which consists of hungry ghosts, spectral beings with huge bellies and tiny necks, can never get their fill of food. To ties, hungry ghosts are terrifyingly real. But try as I might, when I heard the words hungry ghosts, what came to mind was not the karmic embodiment of human insatiability. It was Slimer from Ghostbusters, specifically the cute Slimer with the heliated voice from the cartoon, not the horrible growly one from the films. And to quote the great American sage Ray Parker Jr., I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Siphon asked me what Americans were afraid of. I don't know, I replied. Guns? I envisioned a form of Russian roulette meditation. Some deer hunter fanboy with an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex would surely go for that. No, he said, the fear has to be of something natural. Hmm, I said. Cancer? I later looked it up. Americans' number one fear, according to a study by Chapman University, is corrupt government officials. The second biggest fear is our own health care system. The survey was conducted in 2017, so make of that what you will. Only 4% of people said ghosts, and only 3% said animals, which rank lower than clowns, 6.7%, credit card fraud, 40.3%, and technology, I don't understand, 14.9%. Dying, oddly enough, ranked in the middle of the list at around 20%, far below 
people I love dying, 39.7%. Most people, it seems, fear the deaths of others more than their own death. More than that, they fear other things that will lead to the death of themselves and others, water pollution, nuclear weapons, far more than the actual death itself. This, to me, makes no sense. Sorry, beloved. Sorry, planet. I know it's selfish and immature, but death, my death, is and always has been my biggest fear. Nothing else comes close. Because once that happens, to me, everything else on the list will cease to matter. To me. Months earlier, I had learned about Wat Pai Civil Sci from a travel writer named Adam Pervez, who in turn learned about it from a Czech friend named Michaela. For a certain breed of traveler, one who is both contemplative and adventurous, a connoisseur of intense experiences, it was catnip, an obscure temple in Thailand devoid of tourists that specialized in corpse meditation as well as a number of other intentionally scary practices like being sealed in a coffin and sitting in a box filled with pythons. I would later learn that, according to Thai news reports, this practice was discontinued in 2009 after a girl was almost strangled to death by one of the snakes. These extreme methods were said to jumpstart one's meditation practice. I imagine that they would also help me come to grips with my fear of death. So last February, on the heels of my honeymoon, I left my new husband at a beach on the Andaman and took a train north in search of corpses. I arrived at the temple unannounced on foot with a small backpack. The temple consisted of a series of open-air buildings linked together by dirt paths. Hulking banyan trees were wrapped in dirty prayer ribbons. Stone Buddha statues were slowly being ripped apart by tropical creepers. Everyone wore either brown or light purple robes, and they moved languorously like merpeople, wart-eyed ducks wandered the grounds. In a murky pond lurked catfish the size of nurse sharks. Bystanders stood, feeding them popcorn. There was a row of austere elevated huts where the monks lived in three or four large common areas, one of which the size of a jet hanger served as a dining hall. Evidently, hundreds of people came to the temple, especially on holidays and weekends, but I only saw a few dozen visitors that day, all of whom were Thai. The first building I came to was a shrine room with a shimmering expanse of blue tile floor. An old woman with a shorn head wearing pale lilac robes sat behind a desk. I greeted her, but she spoke no English, and I know Thai. She went in search of someone else who could translate. Finally, the older woman located another woman similarly shorn and dressed. She had a sweet, youthful face with a single ancient strand of hair growing out of a mole on her cheek. Her name was Shinan. She asked my name, Robert, I said. This did not seem to register as a human name. She looked at me as if I had opened my mouth to speak and a blob of gelatin had fallen out. Robert, I said again. Ah, Shinan said to the older woman, Lobot. Ah, Lobot, the older woman nodded and wrote this down. Writing this, I worry you'll think I am creating a kind of Orientalist caricature, fa ra 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 etc., but no exaggeration, this is precisely how they pronounced it. Shannon asked me how long I wanted to stay. I said a week. She nodded. They would lend me a tent to sleep in. I would wake at 5 a.m. to assist the monks on their alms round. Then, after breakfast, there would be two hours of meditation, followed by lunch, the last meal of the day, then two more hours of meditation. At night, 
there would be special meditation assignments like sitting with a corpse. Are you okay breathing quickly, Shannon asked me. Sure, I said. I was soon led to another open-air temple in the back of the property, accompanied by two other new arrivals, a young man and an old woman. We sat in a row, cross-legged on thin cotton mats on the hard ground. We were instructed to close our eyes and perform a special kind of meditation that involved gradually breathing faster and faster until our chests were spasming. As we did this, we mentally recited the mantra, Fang no yup, no nung, no tuck no, increasing the pace until it collapsed in a near ululating nonsense. No, 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 no. We began breathing slowly, but gradually sped up. From time to time, Shannon would lean down and whisper into my ear, Faster, Lobut, faster. A very large ant began making its way across my neck, but I resisted the urge to wipe it away. I suspected one of the monks was testing my resolve by tickling me with a piece of straw. Eventually, the ant worked its way inside my shirt, then slipped on my sweat-slick back and fell out onto the floor. Within ten minutes, the older woman to my right began sobbing violently, apparently having dredged up some repressed trauma. Then I heard the young man leap up off his mat and begin slapping the floor and grunting like a rampaging ape. I just sat there lightheaded and confused. The meditation was led by a corpulent monk named Aoun who resembled an anime frog with the teeth of an anime cat. I had an instinctive distrust of him. He gave off powerful fat bully energy. My suspicions would later be proved correct when early one morning on the alms round, I spotted Aoun performing a mocking impression of a fellow monk, a less than five foot tall and most likely birth deformed fellow with a lazy eye named apparently Choke, who had a voice the exact pitch and register of Itchy the Mouse. While he was giving us instructions, Aoun occasionally paused to let out a series of loud, unabashed, belches. He seemed at first glance to be undergoing a bout of severe intestinal distress. On one occasion, the following day, while teaching a new crop of visitors how to meditate, he began to dry heave, stopping just short of all-out barfing. Oddly, he made no effort to rush out of the temple. He simply stood in front of us, mouth open, eyes bugged, neck veined, making wet, strangulated sounds. This, I later learned, according to the venerable Siphon, was a sign that Aun was receiving a message from the beyond. When the spirits of the dead communicate with you, I was told you either burp, fart, or vomit. After a round of profoundly slow walking meditation, we recommended uh, we recommenced the fast breathing exercise. Only this time, after thirty minutes, just as I was beginning to grow lightheaded, a din erupted all around me. A group of what sounded like forty people had quietly gathered and was now clapping and shouting the mantra into my ears. No, 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 no. The noise was world wobbling. The following day, when I was forced to perform this role with new initiates, I discovered that they used the cardboard spine of a paper towel roll to funnel their voices directly into my ear. What had sounded like 40 people was probably more like eight I could feel my eardrum vibrating like the skin of a drum drum. My diaphragm hurt, and I prayed they would stop before some vital membrane ruptured. Finally, I felt a finger press lightly on my left shoulder, and I allowed my body to fall gently, slowly, 
like a great tree back onto a pillow someone had placed behind me. A cheer went up. Shannon stamped a symbol on my right hand with red ink. My entire body was slimed in sweat and my lungs were still spasming uncontrollably, but my head was pleasantly empty as if a hard wind had blown through it. You passed, said Shannon sweetly as if it had all been a pop quiz. Afterward, I walked back to my sleeping quarters with a monk named Suthep, who was the only monk at the monastery who could speak any English. He had the air of someone who had been tortured by and then overcome vicious grade school teasing. He wore thick Levi's brand glasses, and his two top incisors were angled in such a way that they often trapped food, and when he became excited, which was often, his voice became high and breathy, but he nevertheless managed to give off an air of calm, radiant joy. He, too, received messages from spirits, and they sometimes made him belch and dry heave in my presence. Other times, they would give him the chills. As proof, he once pulled up his robes to show me the hairless, goose-pimpled expanse of his thigh, which was vividly reminiscent of defrosted chicken. The messages were mostly practical in nature, such as when the spirits told him to cut back on his prodigious coffee consumption. Other times, they were more mysterious. On one occasion, following their advice, he invited a handsome young man back to his hut and gave him 100 baht, about $3. He was very confused, Suthep said. I was confused as well, since usually it's the lay people who give donations to the monks, not the other way around. He say, why you give this to me? And I say, I don't know. Suthep pointed to the sky, a boat of the spirits, told me to. Suthep told me that before he was a monk, he had studied law in France, then had come back to Bangkok and worked his way up to a role as an assistant judge. He was successful. He drove a fancy car, but he also had a lot of debt and he wasn't very happy. Then he came to Wat Pai Civil Sai and meditated with a dead body and he received a message. She'd tell me, Suthep, you ought to change your career. You ought to retire your job now and you become a monk, I interjected. No, he replied cheerfully, hair maker. Suthep bought his own barber shop and cut hair for 18 hours a day, finally saving up enough money to pay off all his debts. Apparently, this proved more lucrative than being an assistant judge. Then he closed out his bank account, moved to Wat Pai Civil Sai, and joined the monkhood. He has since meditated with a python and a wild elephant. This method helps you to very, very deep concentration, he said. Moreover, these techniques can supposedly grant meditators otherworldly abilities called apinya, superpower, Suthep translated, his eyes widening in mock wonder. First came the ability to communicate with the dead and with living people in far-off places. Later came the ability to walk super fast, the ability to levitate, or perhaps only to hop while seated cross-legged. It was unclear. The ability to remember past lives and the ability to open one's third eye. I'm unsure to what degree this third eye is congruent with the third eye chakra, which comes to us via Hinduism, New Age spirituality, and rappers who did DMT one time. The way Suthep explained it, the third eye mostly seemed to function like a normal eye. One afternoon, he attempted to show me how it works. First, he blindfolded himself, then picked up a card that was bright red. He held the card in front of his eyes, then rubbed it on the back of his head. Red, he announced. He took off his blindfold and beamed, see, easy. 
Next, I was blindfolded and told to recite the mantra, Aloko Asinang. I held a card in front of my face through the white blindfold. With my eyes open, I could clearly perceive the color. Green? Correct, Lobot, Suthep explained. Uh, exclaimed, I quickly cycled through five more colored cards, greatly impressing Suthep. Next, I was handed a card with a number written on it. Three, I guessed randomly. Wrong, Suthep said. Try again. Seven? Wrong. I feared he would not stop until I got it right, so I angled the card down so I could peek underneath the blindfold. Eight. Correct. He handed me the next card. Nine? Wrong. Six? Wrong. I don't know. What is it? 126. I surrendered. My third eye, it seems, was firmly sealed shut. One day, Suthep took me to see the higher-level meditators. They were located at a vast temple ranch which housed 20 horses, 4 ostriches, and about 50 fanatical humans. One long, open-air building held rows of cross-legged meditators bent over in agonized postures. Suthep said that some of them had been meditating continuously for 48 hours. Elsewhere, meditators were made to sit for long periods of time in a swampy, mosquito-infested corner of the property, accumulating hundreds of bites. Alone in another area near a horse stable, I saw a woman pacing over a large mound of dirt. She was as still as one of those silver-skinned sidewalk statue impersonators. Suthep told me that she was counting to 1,000 with each step. He urged me to try walking over the mound of dirt. I did. A flurry of red ants swarmed my foot, stinging me viciously. The mound, I realized, was a giant anthill. Suthep laughed gleefully. Slower, he called out. Suthep said this course of meditation called Fra Munkai could last anywhere from a week to a month. I asked him what the point of it all was. Suffering, he said. Pain, purify your soul. After I successfully sat in the hut with the corpse, it was decided by Siphon that I should move on to yet a higher level of meditation, holding hands with a corpse. They called this simply, hold hands. Tonight, you hold hands? Good luck, people cheerfully said to me that morning, always with that odd coda, good luck. Once again, I was led through the dark forest to a hut, though this was a different hut in a different forest. Suthep confiscated my phone I was followed by a retinue of 15 or 20 lay people, excited, near giggling, all of whom had tagged along to watch the Falang hold hands. Inside the hut was a coffin, and next to it a framed photograph of the deceased. He was a man in his 60s, wearing the khaki uniform of a civil servant. As with the other corpse, his family had donated him to the monastery for this purpose. Suthep referred to the dead body as my teacher. I was instructed to envision a cycle of energy passing between my body and the dead man's bad energy flowing out of me and good, purified energy flowing from him. Once I had established a connection with my teacher, I could ask him questions. Your teacher will answer you, Suthep said. Anything you can talk with him. For example, I want to become a millionaire. How can I become a millionaire? A young monk cracked open the casket. Inside was a body packed in what I initially perceived as crushed ice, but which, upon closer examination, turned out to be rock salt. The young monk brushed some salt away, revealing a bony forearm covered with black, scaly skin. The fingernails were long and yellow-white and opaque like candle wax. The monk wrenched the arm up out of the coffin 
Then he brushed away the salt, covering the corpse's face, revealing a gaunt head, his skin blackened except for the tallow yellow tip of his nose. His expression looked stern or bitterly disappointed, like a man suffering from an ulcer. Salt crystals filled his eye sockets, his nostrils, his mouth. An odor rose from the coffin, different from before. It resembled dried fish, only it wasn't fishy, it was humany. I was given a pair of rubber surgical gloves to put on. I was instructed to sit down cross-legged and clasp the dead man's hand with both of mine in that over-under-grip presidential candidates used to falsely convey warmth and familiarity. They draped a mosquito net over me, and as the mosquito net passed over my face, I felt a greasy sensation and smelled a terrible, dead human smell, only much stronger. As the mosquito net settled, I realized that the part that had touched my face now rested on the dead man's bare chest and probably had done so many times. I felt a wave of revulsion inside the mosquito net. It was airless and hot. A few mosquitoes had already penetrated the gap between the net and the floor, and more were sure to follow. My back was hunched uncomfortably. Panic scrabbled around in my gut, hollowing out a place for itself. You're really going to leave me in here for an hour and a half, I asked. Yes, Suthep said cheerfully. Good luck. The retinue left me chatting among themselves. I spent the first few minutes dutifully trying to recite the new mantra Suthep had given me, Sitta Pavanayan, and envisioning the bad energy flowing out of my body and into the corpses, not believing in spiritual energy transfer and again quickly forgetting the exact mantra. I felt nothing, and I could picture nothing. All I could focus on was how uncomfortable I was, an acute discomfort that only built with time. Mosquitoes were biting my back, their tiny proboscis needling through the loose weave of my linen shirt. I couldn't swat them without letting go of the dead man's hand, which was forbidden, and each time I tried to shake them loose by wiggling my back, I inadvertently moved the arm, which would release fresh puffs of dried corpse smell. After about 30 minutes, a strange sort of music began to play in the distance. It resembled a Thai version of ranchero music with a bouncy synthesized beat. A singer was trying to hype the crowd by occasionally shouting, Woo! and Woo-hoo! It was a local county fair to mark the Chinese New Year. Having seen such celebrations in the past, I could picture what was taking place. Older people drinking beer and eating chicken saute, young people dancing awkwardly on a makeshift stage, children levitating in a bounce castle. Over there, I told myself, was the land of the living, and here I was of my own volition in the land of the dead. I tried to focus on being mindful, which I had read somewhere helps Navy SEALs who are undergoing real torture as opposed to my mere discomfort. I gripped the dead man's hand tighter. It was hard as wood. I suddenly became keenly aware of my own body, its squishiness, its warmth, its wet, humany smell. I loved it, this body, and I hated it because it hurt, and one day it would hurt more and more until it hurt too much to bear, and then it would go numb and hard as wood. Suthep had suggested that I ask the corpse for advice, so I did. How can I be less afraid of death, I asked. How should I know? The corpse replied. I'm dead. This is not a literary dramatization. I heard this voice quite clearly, or at least I imagined hearing it, which is effectively the same thing. 
By this point, my mind was a dark, sloshing liquid. In the absence of the mantra, which I had now totally forgotten, I made up a new one. Hold on, let go. It seems dumb to me now, but at the time, I liked the internal tension it contained. Hold on to life while you've got it. Let go of life once you don't. This thought calmed me somewhat. Meditative breakthroughs, as with profound drug experiences, often involve the powerful realization of stuff you already knew. The smell remained, but I had learned to half ignore it like a bad roommate. My legs had fallen asleep from sitting cross-legged so long. My right shin was suddenly as foreign to me as his dead hand. Piece by piece, I was vacating myself. Eventually, I heard footsteps. The room was filled with flashlights and chanting. The mosquito net was lifted off of me, again hitting me in the face stinkily, and I unlocked my stiff, numb limbs. As we walked home along the dirt path, Sutha peppered me with questions. When you touched the teacher's hand, did you feel a spark? No, I said. And what about energy? Did you feel your energy going into him? No. Did you see any floating lights? No. Did you hear his voice? I heard a voice, I said, but I think it was just my own. As freaky as it may seem now, the cozy relationship between meditators and corpses stretches back to the very beginning of Buddhism. Siddhartha Gautama himself meditated in open graves using the bones of the dead as his cushion. The famed Tibetan sage Milarepa reportedly went one step further, returning home after many years away. He discovered his mother had died in her hut, so he gathered up her remains and lay upon them in deep concentration for seven days. In Tibet, this kind of practice is called chod, literally cutting through. One of the psychological insights Buddhism of Buddhism is that the things we revile and recoil from are the things to which we are most deeply attached. One must embrace the things one finds most horrifying. Death meditation seems to have petered out in most of the Buddhist world, but it remains surprisingly strong throughout Thailand. I recently spoke with a professor of religious studies named Justin McDaniel, who once lived as a Thamayat monk in a small monastery in northern Thailand. He told me that the monks in his monastery would hoist a corpse on a meat hook and sit watching it for seven hours a day, every day for three or four weeks, until it rotted and fell to the ground. Having experienced it, it is peculiar to me that death meditation isn't more popular cross-culturally. Death, after all, is universal, and yet even as we in the West rush to embrace mindfulness meditation, even as it maximizes the productivity of tech bros and eases the ennui of affluent house spouses, we as a culture have apparently decided that mindfulness of death is gross and morbid. Why do we recoil from it out of disgust, fear, or even cowardice? One afternoon, I was given the chance to put this question to the venerable Siphon. After learning that I sometimes write for magazines, he had agreed to grant me a lengthy interview, making it clear that this was the first time he'd done so with the foreigner. He sat in a chair, sipping a large plastic cup full of lemonade from 7-Eleven, while I, Suthep, Shanan, and a number of other adherents sat on the ground, our legs deferentially folded to the side. He talked for a long time about the intricacies of his teaching, its various stages, the myriad powers that it bestowed, much of which made no sense to me. 
I attempted to steer the conversation to the subject of death. How does one conquer one's fear of death? I tried to ask this question at least three different ways, but the question kept getting snagged in a kind of conceptual thorn bush somewhere between Suthep's translation and Siphon's response, returning to me in unrecognizable shreds. Finally, Shannon, the young woman I'd met on my first day, cut in. It's nature, she said. You born and you die. It's normal. It wasn't so much that she said, it wasn't so much what she said as it was the blank, innocent expression on her face as she delivered this truism, as if I had asked how to get over my fear of breathing or shooting. Why the fuss? Of course, she, like all other Buddhists, had the comfort of believing in rebirth, which, while not always pleasant, was at least something. In the Buddhist world, the fear of death resembles that of a bad breakup, as indeed it is, in a way, since you love yourself most of all, and one day you must say farewell to the one you love, again and again, forever. You can see why one might want off the merry-go-round. What I fear, however, is not rebirth. What I fear is no birth. When I was a kid, someone told me that death is no different from falling asleep. This was meant to be comforting, but it backfired. I automatically reversed the equation, realizing that dreamless sleep resembled the erasure of death. This would result in me lying awake all night too anxious to drift off. One moment I'm here and the next I won't be, I'd think. Which moment will that be? The question agonized me. It agonizes me still if I allow it to. The Abrahamic traditions neatly solve this problem by promising that life continues beyond the grave. In Buddhism, by contrast, salvation lies in the opposite of eternal life. It is the freedom to not be reincarnated. The Buddha compared the death of an enlightened being to a fire that has extinguished all of its fuel, a state of nothingness, of goneness, so profound that it eludes all words. So, in a roundabout way, what Buddhist monks seek is what I fear, dissolving in a fundamentally unknowable and null state. Perhaps that is the source of their courage. They have learned to love the void. The most surprising thing about the week I spent at Wat Pai Civil Sai is that, as absurd as I often found it, the program worked. By my last day, when I sat down for my twice-daily meditation, I felt as calm and focused as I ever have. Ajahn Aoun had failed to show up that day, so a handful of us meditators conducted the session ourselves. During walking meditation, the running dialogue in my mind felt mute. At the end of the hall was a single slender tree upon which I fixed my gaze. All at once, the floor of the temple, which was made of tamped earth, the exact color and consistency of the infield of a baseball diamond, began to shimmer. I felt as if each grain were striking my optic nerve individually without first being run through a series of filters that made sense of it. It dissolved into discrete phenomena, data without meaning, light and pattern, I think this is what the poet and essayist Annie Dillard was describing when, walking home one day, thinking of nothing at all, she encountered a cedar tree near her house, charged and transfigured, each cell buzzing with flame. The world, when you see it in this way, glows, and in perceiving it, you glow too. The seated meditation that followed was... Similar, at first I felt drowsy, but during the course of an hour, my mind rose gradually from the murk into a state of silvery transparency. At the end of the hour, unlike every other day, there was no gong to mark the end of the session. 
I only knew that an hour had passed because I heard my fellow meditators rise from their cushions and start packing up. I opened my eyes. I looked inquiringly at one of the meditators, a haunted-looking young Thai woman named Anne, who spoke some English. What now? I asked. You can do what you like, she said. There is no teacher. She left. I sat for a while with my eyes open. I eventually got up and looked out across a nearby pond. On the other side, a flock of white birds whirled like a stack of paper, torn and flung into high wind. They were following a yellow tractor, which must have been inadvertently stirring up swarms of insects. Life and death, I realized, mingle at every moment. Reincarnation and annihilation, both true. I walked back to my tent, feeling my feet padding softly on the ground in my cloud-like rubber-soled shoes, past the ducks, past the roosters, past the rows of monk huts, and the few people talking quietly at picnic tables, disturbing them not in the least, as if I had magically rendered myself invisible, past the scummy green pond, past the catfish, past the tree wrapped in colorful cloths, silently, silently, watching it all pass through me, a clarity so pure that I can taste it still, like the memory of well water brought up from somewhere cool and deep. I packed up and, after leaving a donation to the temple, said goodbye to Suthep. He offered to call me a taxi to take me to the train station where, I'd, where I would begin the long journey back to my, by now, immaculately tanned husband. But I said I was happy to walk. I shouldered my backpack and hiked down the road. As I turned onto the main highway, a moped rumbled past me. On it rode Suthep, pressed tightly to the back of the handsome young man to whom he had given money on the advice of the spirits. Headed into town on some errand, he was smiling hugely. Good luck, he called out as they turned left and sped away.